Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 9th, 2019, Contempt of Congress edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School is where are you, Emily? What city do we find you in? I am on Liberty Street in San Francisco. And your book tour on the endless Rolling Thunder book tour of Charged. <laughs> Someday we'll end. But in the meantime, I like the idea that I'm on Liberty Street. That didn't get any reaction. I was disappointed. On Not on Liberty Street. <laughs> on West 57th Street is John nice. Dickerson of CBS, kind of CBS this morning. He wish, He is on Liberty Street now. He's liberated. <laughs> he has a new job, which we'll hear about later today. Hello, John. Hi, David. This week's GabFest. First, the most dangerous moment, quite possibly, in American governmental history, I would argue. An executive really? branch. Yeah. We'll talk about it. <laughs> An executive branch that refused to submit, refuses to submit to any congressional oversight. What does that portend for the balance of power in the United States? Then, will President Trump's China tariffs happen? Who will they hurt if they do? Is this a good trade policy that he's pursuing? Then is the Democratic Party headed toward socialism and should it be? And we'll have cocktail chatter. Of course, it will be all whales this week. (laughs) All whale cocktail chatter. And a reminder, dear friends, that we have a live show coming up in New York City in Manhattan on Saturday, June 8th. It's a midday show, not midday, afternoon show, two o'clock at the SVA Theater in Chelsea. It's slate.com slash live for tickets. It's a, it's a concise space, so you might want to act fast to get your tickets now. And it's going to be part of Slate Day, which is a full day of live podcasts. There's the Waves and Outward. There's the Culture Gab Fest. Mom and Dad are fighting. Everybody, everybody's doing stuff. There's a trivia, pop culture trivia contest. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to our show and to Slate Day, Saturday, June 8th. I want to see you there. And my wonderful colleague, Nicole Hannah-Jones, is joining us. Bingo. So I said it in our introduction. I'll say it again. This is quite possibly the most dangerous moment in the history of the American government, a moment when the ability of the legislature, the those elected by the people to represent their interests in Washington and tasked by the Constitution with oversight over the president, over the executive branch, are unable to provide any check on the president because the president, the executive branch, leader of the executive branch, is refusing to cooperate with anything that Congress wants to do. The president has instructed his former White House counsel not to provide any materials to Congress. He has shielded the entire Mueller report with a claim of executive privilege. He has essentially told his attorney general not to testify before the Democratic House. He has resisted any calls to reveal any documentation or, or provide any people to talk about his denial or his granting of security clearances to people who had been flagged as security risks. His Treasury Secretary has defied a Ways and Means Committee order to supply the president's tax returns to them. 
it is astonishing. Emily, I feel that this is a catastrophic risk to the Republic. You are our constitutional scholar. Am I, am I being, uh, am I, am I shouting, uh, shouting constitution in a crowded uh, theater? No, it's a strange situation because we're, it's like a slow roll to a big crisis as opposed to one huge dramatic moment. And that's possible. I mean, that's partly because I think we're becoming numb to these sorts of threats because we've seen other seemingly disastrous constitutional moments in the Trump administration. And then the threat seems to recede a little bit. But I think what's so dramatic about this is this wholesale stonewalling. I mean, we have precedents of presidents and their administrations not complying with a congressional subpoena, but we never had just a total refusal to cooperate with Congress at all. Like, no, we won't turn over these documents. No, we won't let Don McGahn testify. No, we won't release the unredacted Mueller report. Just no, no, no. And that kind of categorical refusal to respect Congress's right to investigate scrambles the balance of powers between the branches. And, you know, it seems like it's illegal when you look back at some of the Supreme Court precedents. But this isn't a hugely developed area of law where we have lots of prior cases, because usually the executive and the legislature work it out. So there's a lot of unknowns here and a lot of risk. John, you you seem to be... Um Maybe maybe your exhalation did not signal uh, optimism, but you you seemed taken aback by my my catastrophic pessimism at uh, the introduction. Do, is this not a dangerous moment? No, no, it's a, you said it was the most dangerous moment. So I immediately I was at Fort Sumter in uh, April twelfth of eighteen sixty one, which seemed more dangerous. But um, but it's dangerous. Also, but one quick just point of clarification. Didn't Carl Klein, who's the um, person who was had responsibility for the White House clearance process, they blocked him at first, but then he ultimately, they 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 worked that out with with the House. I thought that was taken care of in the way in the manner you talked about, which isn't to say that these other things aren't going on. But I was just, um, and and I guess that leads to one first, not the most important point, but couldn't this be the beginning of, particularly with respect to McGahn, just a negotiating posture? Take the maximalist position and then, you know, you'll hopefully get it uh, kind of restricted in some possible way that doesn't allow a, a total fishing expedition. Well, it might be. Yeah, that's it's all possible. possible. But it's, it doesn't look particularly good. I mean, the president has essentially declared these inquiries illegitimate, declared them partisan yeah. inquiries. And certainly there's no indication that, that the president's tax returns is something they're going to negotiate on. They're going to fight that at every step. Right. To me, what it looks like is the... The White House looks at this and says, Congress's mechanisms for requiring us to do this are weak. So the Congress could arrest Bill Barr, other people who defy uh, subpoenas. They are not going to do that. They're not, even if they're held in contempt. Of, they haven't done that since 1935. Yeah, and they're definitely, they're not going to arrest, arrest the attorney general. They could ask the, a U.S. attorney, they could, they could um, file, you know, charge contempt uh, of Congress to, uh, against Bill Barr, against others, and then ask the Department of Justice to file criminal charges against Bill Barr, which is not going to happen because Bill Barr runs the Department of Justice, so that's not going to happen. So their primary mechanism is civil action in the courts, but that's a very, very slow process. And we can be pretty sure that the courts are going to be as reluctant as possible to wade into this and are going to ask for, for the other branches to find, you know, to spend a lot of time negotiating and working this out. And we'll drag it out 
for years and will avoid reaching a decision. I think I actually believe that this Supreme Court, as conservative as it is and as partisan as it is, would ultimately, you know, probably find against the administration. But I think what's going to happen is that it's going to take so long that mm-hmm. that there's not going to be a chance for them to find it. And then that leaves the, the fourth option, which is impeachment. And impeachment would accelerate all of this. But I think the White, I think the White House feels like the options are pretty good for them. Yeah. Right. Politically speaking, they probably are because they allow Trump to get into a fight with Congress, which is unpopular, and just to do a lot of confrontational fist shaking. There is this oddity in this, though, and it doesn't at all negate your point about the politics. But, you know, Congress's power to investigate rises if there's an impeachment proceeding. And so actually, they're giving the House Democrats an incentive to do that, because legally speaking, they would be on stronger ground with these subpoenas if they did that. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that one reason, John, why they they almost are inviting impeachment that the Trump well, the Trump, Trump administration, is there a way in which they're like, oh, let's go the Democrats into yeah, impeaching us. One way to go them is by denying them documents. I think that's right. Nancy Pelosi, in fact, said that's what the president was up to. And I, I think we should explore that for a moment. And by the way, I don't, don't, you know, don't anybody mistake what I think here is um, another awful breaking of norms, which is just respecting the idea that the yes. white, that, that Congress has a legitimate oversight role to play. Bill Barr actually, to his credit, in one of the early stages after the Mueller report, uh, referred proactively to Congress's legitimate oversight function. I guess it was between the summary and the actual releasing of the Mueller report and said that he was going to seek to redact it as lightly as possible because Congress had a legitimate oversight function. And so though that is an incredibly low bar <laughs> to say that the the body outlined in the first article of the Constitution is in fact a legitimate body. That's very different than the acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, who said basically Congress uh, had almost no role in overseeing uh, the executive branch. It was unless it was about some specific piece of legislation, which was obviously not what he would have believed when he was a member of Congress. And so, uh, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to suggest that this isn't kind of extraordinary, and also the kind of beat the clock approach, which takes us back to the um, the impeachment goading. Nancy Pelosi believes, and I think she's right, that the president would like um, to be in permanent a permanent fight with Congress, um, and and uh, and and say basically that they're hell bent on impeachment. That's something that's not popular in the country, and they're not doing their job. Um, so I think absolutely they would like to basically keep a fight going to keep Congress, the Democrats in Congress, as their foil. Now, the House, the Senate Intelligence Committee kind of messed that up a little bit by subpoenaing Don Jr. over the discrepancy between his testimony and what's in the Mueller report with respect to Russia. So they, the, the Senate Republicans um, in charge of the House Intel- Senate Intelligence Committee sort of thwarted that a little bit. John, do you think there's any universe in which a critical mass of Republicans, especially in the Senate, join in standing up for the prerogatives of the institution? Or is is partisanship just completely overwhelmed the institutional interest? Because I think one of the things this would signify if if the president is successful in his in his blowing off and defiance of Congress is is the weakening of the Congress as a as an as a branch relative to the executive and even a weakening of the courts relative to the executive. Uh, and I wonder if, if this is something that even Republican senators are going to sit by for just because 
it's uh, you know it's their guy in the White House. But don't you think that they'll make some statements? They'll sort of do some hemming and hawing and express some distress, and then they won't actually take any action. I think that's certainly um, what we've seen so far. You know, I think if it goes too far. Um, I mean, on this, okay, so essentially I think where we've seen Republicans in the Senate break from the president is on some trade stuff, some foreign policy stuff. But if it's a matter of protecting the prerogatives of the institution, the institution that's not popular at all among the the base of their party, I would think that would be unlikely to stir a lot of them. Marco Rubio was caught in a difficult position uh, with video that showed him um, expressing constitutionally founded outrage at Attorney General Holder for defying the will of Congress and saying in the con- in that outrage speech um, from the Obama administration that it wouldn't that his standard for how an attorney general should respond to congressional inquiry would be no different were it were were it a Republican attorney general bill uh, Bill Crystal posted this on uh, on Twitter and it obviously found a lot of support uh, among Democrats and Marco Rubio's response was oh you're right I have for a long time maintained these immutable standards Standards about the separation of powers as a member of the Article One branch. No, he said. Well, if the current Attorney General had done with the um, Fast and Furious gun program what Holder had done, he should resign. So essentially, he moved away from the standard he had once articulated and and basically didn't didn't do what you're saying, David, which is stand up for the prerogatives of the institution, uh, but made it a kind of political defense. And um, and so it would seem to answer your question at least in that instance. Uh, for partisanship rather than institutionalism. Emily, you're you're our court scholar, of course. Do you get a sense about how the federal courts are going to handle democratic s- civil suits if they are forced to face them, and and how the Supreme Court would be likely to handle it if it if those suits got to them? Let's say, uh, in the case of contempt of Congress with Bill Barr and compelling his testimony, or or fighting over the Mueller report's release and the executive privilege claim of the administration, what is it that the courts are likely to do? And and are they just going to try to delay it so they don't have to decide? Well, the lower courts will have to rule. I mean, you know, there'll be questions about standing, but Congress, this is Congress's investigative power. And so they should be able to get beyond the problems that sometimes prevent courts from ruling at all. Like, do you have standing to sue? And that comes down to whether you have an, a harm that the suit can actually address. And then this, there's this uh, political question doctrine. The Supreme Court sometimes doesn't want to get into the middle of a fight between the branches. And so it ducks using that as basically an excuse. It depends which of these controversies you're talking about. Some of them don't look good for the Trump administration at all. So take this idea that we're going to block Don McGahn from testifying. Well, the Trump administration already waived executive privilege during the Mueller investigation and let McGahn be interviewed, invoking it after the fact for events that McGahn has already given an account of. That doesn't usually fly. It sort of goes against the basic idea of what privilege is for. And then another particularly weak element of this, I think, is Trump's tax returns, right? I mean, we have this federal law that says that the Secretary of the Treasury shall furnish these tax returns when the chairperson of Ways and Means asks for them. Shall furnish does not sound optional. Let's go back to the point John was making before about recognizing Congress's legitimate function. Our current Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, said 
that uh, the reason that Trump is not turning over the tax returns, they didn't claim executive privilege. They said there's, quote, no legitimate legislative purpose for these requests. <laughs> right. I mean, this is notwithstanding this federal law that I was just quoting. And also in a situation in which the purpose is to try to understand Trump's business ties in Russia, outside of Russia, how are they influencing him and the appointments he's making or other actions he's taking? I mean, you know, this also ties to the separate litigation over the emoluments clause in the Constitution. But all of this comes down to the nature of Trump's business empire and the little we know about how that may be affecting actions he's taking in office, decisions he's making, effects that you know, his actions are having and also just claims he's made, like when he said that he wasn't going to benefit from the Republicans tax cuts, which seems wildly implausible. Plus, of course, we're having this fight in the wake of a new New York Times bombshell about Trump's tax returns from the 80s and 90s, which also seemed to suggest that, you know, he paid no taxes or very little taxes for years. And again, that the account he's given of his business interests is probably just not true. So the notion, this is all to say, like the idea there's no legitimate legislative purpose here, that this is just like personal harassment seems just wrong. Well, actually, can't you go back one Don't you not even have to get to that? In fact, if you're arguing on whether there's a legitimate legislative purpose, sorry, but that's not the executive branch's role. The executive branch's role is to to faithfully execute the laws that have been passed. And so in this case, forgetting the facts of the case and whether you think that the legislation is good or not, the legislation has been passed. It exists. And certainly under Mick Mulvaney's uh, super limited view of oversight, but given any view, the, the role of the executive is to faithfully carry out the laws as they've been passed. And so isn't Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, not doing the fundamental thing the executive branch is supposed to do, which is execute the law. Yes. I mean, I think, I suppose Mnuchin could argue that he's saying there's no legitimate legislative purpose for these particular requests. So he's not saying the law doesn't apply at all. But like, given that the law says shall furnish tax returns, it's really hard to see how that distinction actually holds up. One other thing, I back to, to David's point, I just want to make sure that um, I think it is very interesting that um, I know I said this before, but that Don Jr. has been subpoenaed by the Republican chairman of the Intelligence Committee. That's something you would not have expected, given the supremacy of party leaders in the Senate, both on the Democratic and Republican side, when they've been in the majority. But um, I mean, literally, just as Mitch McConnell had finished saying anybody who cares about the Russia uh, conspiracy question is a a delusional partisan, and then suddenly a member of his own party agrees to have a subpoena uh, that rather undermines the uh, kind of unified message. Just going to this New York Times tax bombshell. I just use the word bombshell because people say that, but it didn't actually feel like a bombshell to me. It felt like it was interesting. Uh, But it revealed, of course, the president lost probably more than any on taxes, on his taxes. He reported losses that are probably greater than any other American during that period of 1985 to 1995. In one year, he was accounted alone for about 2% of all claimed losses by all taxpayers in the country, just himself, which is astonishing. Do those tax filings, Emily, indicate, my goodness, what an incompetent businessman or, my goodness, what an amazing tax fraud this guy pulled? To me, it like indicates more the latter, that his history is of tax fraud and not of 
losses because he clearly was living high on the hog. He was flying around in helicopters. He was had his great apartments. He was there was no he he certainly wasn't diminished in in how he lived during that time. So it 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 reeks to me of fraud rather than incompetence, or maybe it's both. I thought Josh Barrow had a convincing piece about this. Some of it went over my head because it was um, about investment income versus interest income. But <laughs> but in any case, the the conclusion was basically that it didn't make sense that Trump could have actually lost this enormous amount of money because he wouldn't have had this enormous billion dollars necessarily, but that he was probably taking tax write-offs for other people's losses. In, and in doing that, perhaps invoking a loophole that Congress has since closed, but that allowed you to do this, especially, I think, as a real estate developer, in a way that seemed totally sketchy and uh, and supported your theory of the case, David. So finally, there, there were so many aspects of the story. Just want to flag one last thing, which is it looks like New York State Legislature and New York State Senate passed a law that would authorize the New York State government to turn over the Ways and Means Committee state tax records, state tax returns to Congress if Congress, certain, if three committees of Congress request it. And it's likely that's going to pass the New York State House and also be signed by Governor Cuomo. And it's clearly targeted at getting Trump's New York State tax returns, which will reveal a lot of the same things that his federal tax returns will reveal. Does this feel like it is going to succeed in in a way that other efforts to go after Trump's tax returns are going to fail? I mean, you know, look, it's a a good use of federalism, right? The idea that a state government can come in and provide a check that the federal government seems to be failing. It's a little, I I think the scariest part of this is this question about whether the White House is going to obey a direct court order. I mean, it could happen in the context of this federal law or it could Mm -hmm. happen with this new New York state law. Either way, they're going to be litigated. Doesn't matter how clear the language of the law is, right? We already know that from Mnuchin's response. And so, you know, yes, you would think the Supreme Court would uphold that law as well as uphold the Ways and Means Committee chairman's request under the federal law. And then there's just this question of like, what will happen next? And that's where I think, David... You're saying that this could be, you know, a truly scary moment in American history. That's one of the scenarios in which that really comes to pass. The idea of a White House actually defying a court order. Wouldn't those state, wouldn't if if New York passes that law, wouldn't they be able, they have the state records, they can just turn them over. Why does the, why does the White House have to be involved? Yeah, that's a really good point. I wasn't thinking about that. Right. It's uh, not the IRS, right? It's it's the New York department. They're they're saying, let me unlock this file drawer with this key that I have taped on the front of the file drawer. Ooh, I'm so glad you remembered that. Can I just say two quick things before we exit this um, bog? The first is talking to a former Democratic lawmaker this past weekend, just as a political matter. um, This person was saying... It was it was crazy for Democrats to play uh, kind of youth soccer where everybody runs in crowds around the ball. In this case, the ball was William Barr and pay less attention to the Fifth Circuit action the administration took to basically gut the Affordable Care Act that had happened that same week. And this person's argument was all Democratic lawmakers should have been talking about health care, which people care about in the country. Hell yeah. It's an yeah, it's an issue they have. It's an issue they have. uh, uh some facility with and the the press was going to obsess about Barr and whether Barr had told the truth the summary and all the rest of it and that this showed a total disordered 
priorities on the part of Democrats more broadly and also Democratic leadership. The second thing I would say is on Thursday, while we were taping, John Cornyn, the number two person in the Senate, said with respect to Richard Burr, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, his colleague said uh, that his subpoena of Don Jr., quote, smacks of politics. And I think we have an important job to try to keep the Intel Committee out of politics. So you have a leader of the Republican Party, just to your initial question, David, a leader of the Republican Party not standing up for the prerogative of the institution, which is the chairman's ability to seek accurate and clear information and not have people lie to him and to seek out the truth when they think that person may have lied. He's saying that smacks of politics rather than saying, how dare anybody not be fully candid with the United States Senate. So that's just a little bit other development on that. And now I'll shut up. Sing it, brother, about the health care point. Wow. All right. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts. And today, for I think like the 16th time since we've been doing this podcast, we're going to talk about John's new job. I feel like we always talk about John's new job on Slate Plus. <laughs> Does John have John's, a new job every John day? John gets a new job We're just time. also curious about John's new endeavors. That's why. Uh, we're always quelling about it. So we're going to quell, quell about John's new job. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Trade. It's not a subject we've talked about a lot on the GABFEST, but why not? Let's do it, because trade talks between the United States and China are in a precarious state. The president this past weekend threatened to hike tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports to 25%, up from current 10% rate, and possibly to then increase tariffs on another $325 billion in Chinese goods later on. Remember, tariffs are not paid. They are not paid by China. They're not even paid by the company that makes the goods. They're paid by us. We pay higher fees in the form of higher prices back to the government, essentially. So, John, what is it that the president is trying to accomplish with these tariffs? What, why, why are we in a precarious, why, why are we on the brink of a trade war with China? And, and is that okay? Well, it's an interesting question of okay. So, with so much to unpack here, first of all, the president is either willfully misleading people about the way tariffs work, or he doesn't know the way they work, and that these uh, these increased tariffs are 
passed on to consumers. And in fact, there's been considerable studies about these tariffs and and the effect they've had on consumers. And so that's just one thing that's kind of just as a general, we shouldn't let that go bad. But just can I I just add to that, which is that generally it looks like, you know, the economy is in pretty good shape. These tariffs have been a slight drag on consumers, not a huge drag, a slight drag on consumers. Um, and really hurt farmers because yeah. the retaliatory tar- tariffs by China, mostly against U.S. agricultural products, has caused a huge drop, huge, huge drop in U.S. agricultural exports to China, which has been very damaging for U.S. farmers. U.S. consumers, in so, terms of when they're buying goods, have been hurt slightly. So the National Bureau of Economic Research looked at this question. So this isn't just people like guessing, right? Um, so... And basically, U.S. consumers and firms who produce, who purchased imported goods lost $68 billion. And producers who were charging U.S. producers who passed along the higher prices of these tariff- tariffs made $61 billion. So the consumer lost and the companies that raised their prices in order to, to uh, um, accommodate the tariffs made uh, $61 billion. As you point out, David, this had an effect on real incomes. It had an effect on particularly rural places in the Midwest, which is interesting because that presumably is Trump country. Um, and then the question will be, well, will that matter? And and workers in the Midwest were the ones suffering the most. So again, a lot of those countries, uh, sorry, a lot of those states that um, Trump flipped that people expected to go to the Democrats are the ones taking the brunt of this. And so will that matter in the election will be an interesting, interesting thing to to work out. Now, the question is, many people who may disagree with the president's specific strategy, nevertheless, broadly agree with uh, the, the need to take on China uh, and be quite aggressive in taking on China for stealing U.S. intellectual property and for basically trying to edge the U.S. out as the uh, world's strongest economy and strongest nation. Like the kind of pugilistic thrust of the president's behavior, if not the specific policies. So you could imagine constructing an argument that said, yes, this is hurting people in the short term. But in the long term, it's going to uh, it's going to set things up for a better relationship with China. And if China starts to pay billions and billions and billions of dollars more in royalties for U.S. intellectual property, then that substantial increase ultimately in royalty payments could offset what you're seeing now uh, in the in the losses that people are feeling. Now, it would be interesting to see how those would be distributed geographically in the country. Indeed. So, you know, you could imagine a situation in which the coasts benefit from these royalty payments, but the Midwestern farm the Midwestern farmers essentially uh, pay the price. Yeah, it, the politics of that seems so backwards, right? Because the Trump base, which seems to be fairly patient right now and giving him the benefit of the doubt, that trade-off you just outlined, that would completely screw all those farmers in, you know, the heartland to the benefit of, like, Los Angeles and New York. I think this is a really interesting issue because this is an issue where where it's a rare issue where the Trump administration has a policy that seems to be set by people who are pretty smart who have a clear worldview and are pursuing a strategy. Now, now Trump is magnifying it and aggravating it with with the tweets, but actually that that may be even part of the strategy. Um, and where it's, it reflects a kind of coherent worldview, which is that the that China, because of theft of intellectual property, its excessive backing of state-owned businesses, its oppression of Uyghurs and other religious minorities, its uh, its 
the fact that the government hasn't liberalized, that uh, president, the president of China is sort of expanding to dictatorial powers, that, that some of the liberalization that, that we expected hasn't happened, that a lot of the things that we thought were going to be better in Chinese government and economy have gotten worse, and a lot of the things that, that bother us have also gotten worse. Um, and so there is an interesting and strong case to have a less cheerful, less friendly engagement than we've had. The Trump policies and the kind of fierce negotiating tactics around trade are one totally legitimate response to it. I don't. I think where where I fault them, because I'm not enough of an economist to know whether the tariffs and the threat of tariffs are a smart negotiating strategy or not. Where, where it's clear that we have failed is that we have we have, in addition to uh, alienating China or fighting with China, we've also fought with our economic allies. So we've we've done some of these same things to countries like Mexico, Canada, Germany that are our closest economic allies. And so we've, we've engaged in the same hostility with them. So we have less ability to call on them to unite against China because we've been such jerks to them. That's number one. Number two is that we have been really ineffective. China has engaged in this extremely well-thought-out strategy mm-hmm. manifest in this policy called Belt and Road of knitting together the world through infrastructure projects and huge grants to governments in, in countries around the world, and that has created a huge network of alliances and trade alliances. And that's made the Chinese economy even stronger than it, it would be and, and better connected than it would be and better connected than us in a lot of ways. And that it's hard to, for us to compete with that. And so that, that has me bummed that we've missed. And then we withdrew from TPP, which was this other mechanism to limit the power of China and kind of cause more of a free trade zone of countries other than China in Asia and the U.S. And, and so I'm, I'm, disappoint, I'm not disappointed with this particular China policy, which I don't know enough about to really understand. I am disappointed that all these other things that would have helped us contain China, helped us sort of have a stronger uh, case against China, that we've done so poorly with that. I also wonder this, and I'm, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll match your ignorance with my own, which is the president has taken a, well, a pretty accommodationist view towards North Korea. Two new missile tests this week, which the president, when North Korea didn't fulfill any of the requirements of the original quote-unquote deal, although it's unclear now that there was really any kind of a deal after their first meeting, when North Korea has continued to not live up to the what the administration put forward as promises, um, the president said, well, just as long as they don't test. And now they've tested twice. They've shot projectiles into the air. Um, Now, whether that meets the definition of test as the president saw it, I'm sure will be modified. But nevertheless, they keep not doing what the U.S. wants them to do. The president keeps letting Kim Jong-un off the hook and talking about his economy and all of that. So I wonder if there's if there's a because every time I think about North Korea, I think about China because both it affected the way the U.S. When I interviewed the president after his first hundred days, he said, trade schmade. If I can get China to help me with North Korea, that's more important than anything. Well, now he has launched several rounds of trade wars with China. So what's their role with respect to North Korea? And if they're not helping us put pressure on North Korea, we know that there's kind of been a weakening of sanctions uh, in the relationship between China and North Korea. Is there a way in which his softening uh, and uh, supple response to North Korea is somehow a way to put pressure on China that's a part of this uh, long-term fight over trade? I have a slightly different point, which is it would be one thing, David, 
to imagine that this more aggressive stance is going to have all the benefits you were outlining if you could imagine the rest of the world's economy standing still. But it's not going to stand still. And so then China will deepen its ties with other countries and other countries will step in and China will conduct trade there and build plants there. I mean, there are already stories about Mexico benefiting at the expense of the United States. It just... I don't know. It's just hard for me to imagine that this kind of sniping really yields but, a big benefit okay, at but, the end. Okay. All right. Fair point. Then wh- how? What's the right way to engage China on trade? Tariffs, rates, costs for American consumers. You know, they do hurt American agricultural exports. That's all true. But what is your mechanism for putting pressure on China, which is engaging in this massive theft of, of American intellectual property? Right. There has to be some I mean, way to put pressure I, on them because those really are problems. I think, the, I think the answer is actually going back to my earlier answer is we should have been in TPP, which was this trade well, that's zone what which I was, was gonna excluded say. That's China, like, for example. Yes. John, how do you think this issue is for Trump politically? I feel like it's not unlike immigration, which is that there's not a huge amount of downside. In fact, it's better than immigration. There's not a huge amount of downside in being tough on China. There's a lot of suspicion and skepticism of China. So I agree with you, and that's why... Uh, the idea that it's hurting workers and farmers in the Midwest intrigues me to the extent that the president was attractive to those voters on identity issues and values issues. That will be the turf that he will um, seek to use again in this election. Um, and so um, this would be another category in which people might vote based on um, issues other than those that are directly that, that affect their pocketbooks. John, do you think the dynamic would be entirely different if it was a Democratic president who was making these moves? I just feel like all of the assumptions in the press coverage would be about what a dastardly deed this was and the terrible political fallout. I don't think so. I think taking on China is a bipartisan issue, but you would also have a unified Republican Party going after a Democratic president on free trade grounds. Those Republicans are now supporting this president not on free trade, but nevertheless, they would be a unified voice, whereas the unified voice and there is not a unified Democratic voice on the trade issue against President Trump the way you'd have a unified Republican voice against a Democratic president. So those are dynamics. I don't know what the ultimate answer to your question is, but those are some of the ways I think the dynamics would be different. All right. I got a news news flash, news flash. John, make your news flash noise. So we just got a tweet from GapFest listener Mr. JM, which says, which sent a link to a story about the Russian whale. I know, that's my chatter. Okay. Wait, there's a new yes. story about the Russian whale? The Russian whale is like going to be with us yes. forever. The saga oh of the God. Russian whale. I, I won't say another word. Just you guys got to keep listening until chatter. All right, now David is the one who with irrepressible oh, giggles. Oh, man. I'm, I'm so... This is, this is going to be better than last week's. All right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A specter is haunting the Democratic Party, the specter of communism or socialism. 
the Democratic Party has suddenly been engulfed in a fascinating debate about how socialist and how capitalist it is and should be. Young Democrats in particular have a far jollier view of socialism than they do of capitalism. We have socialist Bernie Sanders running for president. Democratic socialist uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the darling of the party and of, of uh, the media as well. This weekend at the Crosscut Festival in Seattle, where Emily and I both were, I moderated an enthralling, totally enthralling, in an office, often quite vicious panel uh, with two socialists, one a Seattle City Council member named Shama Sawant, the other a uh, socialist who is a Democratic House candidate named Sarah Smith, and then a third person, the chair of the Washington State Democratic Party, Tina Podlodowski. And it was very clear there's going to need to be some family therapy before the socialists and the Democrats, the Democratic establishment, uh, share a beach house again, because there is a lot of there's a lot of tension between that socialist group and the mainstream Democratic group. So, John or Emily, do you get a sense that that there's a distinction between what people talk about progressivism and socialism? Is socialism when when people in America are talking about socialism, even even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's a member of the Democratic Socialist, do they mean government ownership of the means of production and and state planning of the economy, or do they mean just sort of more liberal economic policies? I mean, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talks about this, doesn't she always try to make clear that what she's saying is she thinks that, like, people should have food on the table and a roof over their heads and, like, the basic necessities of life? I don't hear her talking about the government taking over um, you know, major industries in this country. So to me, healthcare. it seems healthcare, healthcare. That's true. Yeah, healthcare. I suppose that's right. Nationalizing healthcare would be taking a private sector part of the um, of our societal structure and turning it over to the government. Good point. But I don't. That's not the same as like seizing the means of production and like having the government march in and start telling everybody like how many tubes of toothpaste to produce. Although it does for the case of healthcare, it does. It would be like. That you would do that in healthcare, and and to a certain extent within higher education, and yeah, too, right. I mean, but it's the it's a European model of socialism, I suppose, right? I mean, it would be turning us, it would be making us more like France and Scandinavian countries in terms of the government's role. It would be higher taxes. It would be more of a welfare state. It would be reducing inequality. But I don't see it as like a fundamentally different kind of government and economy than the one we have now. John, what do you well, think? there, uh, it's I. I wish we could um, kind of all re- reframe terms because you have so you have socialism as it's used as a um, you know political weapon, which basically means and and um, you know as Harry Truman said, socialism is a scare word that they've heard it you know that, that that Republicans have hurled at every advancement that's helped the people, and that was Truman you know, and that's certainly been the case. It's a, so it's used as a political scare word, which tends to mean anything that the Democrats propose. There is though a distinction between what I think even Bernie Sanders, when I asked him about socialism and capitalism, his is basically managed capitalism, which is basically the market system is fine. It's just that too many of the riches of that system have flowed to in too great a degree to too small a number of people. And so he would like to manage that market system in a way that rebalanced and took the inequities out of the way it's been working. But that the essential market system is not a problem. 
I think it's true that the real socialists believe that the market economy can that is the basis of the, the capitalism that is the basis of the American system is antithetical to the theories of liberty in the American system. And so in that sense, you can't manage it. It is just it, it is or I mean, you can it's like an alcoholic saying they can just have one drink that it's always going to go bonkers and trample the liberty of of some great number of Americans and that therefore you have to break out of the market and capitalism and certainly, if not break out of it, stop making it the god of the American uh, way. And so I think that's where you have one group wants to tinker, one group wants to completely dismantle. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, to me, is, is, the, is the right avatar here. I mean, Warren, I think, Warren, to me, represents what you just described Sanders representing, is that she's a capitalist who thinks markets are failing because no one is policing them, because they don't have sufficient rules, that people cheat in them. Sanders, to me, does not really trust markets in the way that Warren, I think, does trust markets. Almost everybody who is a Democrat or is on the left w- agrees on the following things. They agree inequality in this country is way out of hand. They agree that there needs to be universal health care. There needs to be higher minimum wages. There needs to be better access to child care and daycare. And there are probably a few other they need there needs to be an improvement in how the economy handles the environment, although I actually put that aside. I think that's a, almost a sort of separate issue. I mean, it shouldn't be, but it is a separate issue. So there is a, there's, a, I think, a vast agreement um, and that where that where people tend to get hung up is on is on the tactics that you use to accomplish what you want. Uh, what I thought was so interesting when I was moderating this panel, Shama Sawant, who is this incredibly effective and you know very powerful city council member in Seattle, points out that like how did Seattle get the fifteen dollar minimum wage, which in turn then traveled through the rest of the country because of what happened in Seattle? It got it not because it because Democratic politicians who wanted it pushed it. They were afraid. The Democratic politicians were afraid. They got it because a kind of coalition, a grassroots coalition led by the socialists, just made you know, made it their absolute cause. They were noisy. They were loud. They were disruptive. They demonstrated. And that's what accomplished it. And then she also cited, interestingly, the kind of wildcat teacher strike in West Virginia as this was an illegal strike. It was not led by politicians. It was totally a grassroots movement in a red state, and it accomplished a huge amount of what they wanted. So I, I almost feel like the distinction right now isn't between, isn't isn't about the policy goals. It's about the means to achieve them and that the when you say socialist, what you're saying is I'm somebody who doesn't, who just believes that the working institutionally in the system is intrinsically going to fail. And I want to, whether it's through Occupy, the Occupy movement, whether it's through the the kind of uh, protest, the teacher strikes, other other forms of strikes, that that is what is going to drive debate, not I- not the sort of slower legislative action. So then you're talking about radicalism. Yeah, I think it's maybe that's right? a right. Ra- you're yeah, not really yeah. talking about different. Yeah, I think it's maybe that's right, Emily. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I interrupt you. Like the degree to which you're really willing to shake things up, not play by the normal nicey-nice rules and believe that that kind of tough, you know, unrelenting tactic and need to really like blow up the system is what is what's necessary. Well, except I, I would say that it's radical. I think, again, I'm not sure that all the people who I don't think every person who went on a strike in West Virginia is a radical trying to blow up the system. They still believe in yeah. kind of universal public education. And they, they they just believe like, oh, tactically, what is going to get us the fair wages we deserve is 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 a different approach than what we would have and, used. 
Yes, that that makes sense. But also they were willing to break the law. It was a wildcat strike. Yep. Like they weren't going to be hemmed in by what felt to them at that moment like a legal nicety. But I think that real socialists, and I'm real socialists can write in and tell me if I'm wrong, would be frustrated by that definition though, David, because their argument is, no, this isn't about tactics. It's about actually fundamentally breaking up capitalism as being at the heart of the American system. And that if you think it's just on tactics, you will gloss over that and do exactly what you said, David, which is participate in tactics that get you a narrow goal that people who nevertheless might believe the capitalism uh, capitalist system should exist will participate in for the purposes of winning over in that narrow goal, but then won't confront what in their view would be the larger problem, which is this, as long as you have capitalism at the heart of America, you're going to have these inequities. I get the other thing that I find in this discussion to make the obvious point. I mean, even cap capitalism always is defined by the rules we set, right? There is no such thing as some pure capitalist system. We always have some regulation or we have lack of regulation and it the government sets the terms in whatever whatever level of rules that it chooses to impose. And then the other thing I feel like we end up having this discussion that's about a more transformative, you know, truly socialist vision, but we are so far from that in America right now, right? And so really what we're talking about is just like expanding the Overton window to move it so that it's possible to have something like a $15 minimum wage, which is like hardly some radical socialist weapon being, you know, I mean, come on, like that is such a, in the end, minimal interference with a more pure capitalist model, especially at a moment, as you were saying, David, in which we have this intense and growing inequality right. in this country. So there's this there's this conference of, of kind of really rich people talking about inequality. It was one of these hilarious, it was in Beverly Hills, it was Michael Milken, and it was a bunch of incredibly rich people getting together to rub their hands together concernedly about inequality. And it's just maddening when things like that happen. But there were a pretty smart- Wait, head, why? Why? Because- because they're they you know they they didn't bring in anybody who is unequal. They brought in a bunch of rich people to say, "Oh, isn't inequality a problem?" Yes, it's kind of a problem, but socialism isn't the solution. Higher taxes aren't the solution. Um, it's just it's it's it, it was so fake in a way. Oh, so uh, it's not that they were meeting; it's just you didn't like the solutions they came up with. It's the Beverly Hill optics plus the lack of real <laughs> solutions. It sounds like. This this one one guy whose name I forgot to write down in my notes, but who said this level of inequality ends in two ways. It ends either with legislation. It ends. It always ends with redistribution, and it either ends with redistribution yep. through legislation, or it ends with redistribution through revolution. And we all know which one we want. So he was like, "Let's let's have let's have the peaceful way, not the wild way." So actually, it was a highly useful conference. It provided that yeah, good seems like framing, it uh, defined an important framing. Um, the response during the Gilded Age was for the Carnegies and the Morgans and the Rockefellers to all feel an obligation that when they had their piled up all their riches, that they had to redistribute it themselves. That there was a and now that may not be the solution, but that no, but and I guess it's the I guess people like Bill Gates are sort of doing that without turning it into a social theology. Uh, anyway, that's another, that seems to me is another option. It may not be effective, but another option in addition to revolution and legislation. Um, but can I say one thing about, um, you mentioned Elizabeth Warren, David. It turns out the risk series that I did for Slate so long ago, it was born from uh, 
an article that I read in, I think, Democracy Magazine, and I couldn't remember who wrote the article. And it was basically about oh, how... that's a big Elizabeth Warren moment. It was about risk and about how the American capitalist system was built on risk and we needed to um, set up uh, through legislation the playing field to encourage people to take risks because it was a crucial part of the American story. And it was from there that I thought, huh, that idea of risk is really interesting. Anyway, it turns out it was Elizabeth Warren who wrote that piece. Um, so, uh, well, that piece also, if we're talking about the same piece, and I'm pretty sure we are, is what led to the creation of the CFPB, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. Yeah. And at the heart of that is David's point, which is that her thinking about the world is that the market and capitalism are, should be saved and, and not banished. Can I say one more thing? Because we've left unions out of this conversation, which seems kind of crazy If since the weakening of unions throughout the country, the fact that there are fewer people in them, that it's harder to start a union or expand a union or start a chapter, all of that is part of this conversation. It's another way in which we have this kind of boogeyman of socialism out there to scare voters who don't like that concept at a moment in which like there's just less and less room for workers to actually bargain on their own, own behalf. Let, let Actually, on the last point of socialism, the bogeyman of that word socialism, do you guys think that it's just a doomed word or can socialists reclaim it or, or should socialists just say, oh, you know what, let's just call ourselves progressives and that'll be fine? Well, no, because I think I think true socialists want to reclaim it from the progressives. I think that's their I think they're irritated by the use of it because they would say progressives aren't socialist enough. Well, so progressive is such a weird term because it's it it's just like relative to right. It's like the idea of moving forward. It doesn't say where you are or where you're going. Yeah. Okay. Is the word reclaimable, Emily, in America? I think so. I've never really understood why it's so scary. Like, to me, the the way in which we worry about the term socialism is like how I feel about the word communism. It always makes me feel like I'm sort of 30 years behind this conversation. And, and that, that we're attributing all of these alarming qualities to socialism that I think belong to communism. And then I just feel like I somehow missed the boat on this somewhere along the way. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you've missed the boat, you're sitting on the pier and you're like, oh my God, I missed the boat. My whale watching boat has left. What am I going to do? I'm just going to sit here. I may I'll just get a drink at the local seaside pub. And there's an old sea salt next to you. Emily, what are you going to chatter to that old sea salt about? My chatter is about a new study by Andrea Roth. It is about something I had never heard of before, which is that in Orange County, if you get accused of a misdemeanor, prosecutors will say, hey, we'll dismiss that charge, but we'd like your DNA, please. And they've built a data DNA database based on this supposedly like consented spitting that has like 150,000 people in it. It's called um, Acquit and Spit, this database. And I mean, I, <laughs> I guess in some sense, this is unsurprising because 
sure, people are going to just decide to spit in a cup as a way of getting out of some offense. It just feels to me, though, like this huge expansion of surveillance and the way in which uh, one more example of the way in which we give over crucial information and data about ourselves that is actually invasive and powerful when it becomes a giant database in the hands of the government. And we do it without even really thinking about it. Um, Anyway, uh, Andrea Roth on spit and acquit and DNA databases. Is that the, why is that different from uh, fingerprints? Well, I mean, DNA is arguably more invasive, although the Supreme Court ruled effectively that DNA is not like drawing blood, for example, right? If the government was asking to draw your blood, we would all pretty clearly say like that seems above and beyond, although I suppose that the government could next demand that as a way of getting out of a misdemeanor charge as long as they could pretend that people were consenting. But yeah, I mean, what do you think? Do you think DNA is just like fingerprints? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's the same as fingerprints, and yet I can't articulate why I feel that way. It's more reliable, right? I mean, DNA profiling, when it's done correctly, is much more accurate than fingerprinting. It really does, like, tell us who people are. And fingerprinting, you know, often they're, like, smudged in some way. They're not that useful, yada, yada. Whereas, like, DNA is... Unless they mess up the lab results, like they really does tell you that it's you well, then, and not someone then else. And that's an argument for it, right? Because then you don't get wrongly accused. Well, right, except also if you are collecting all this information about people, then we get to like search through it and you could get found through some relative of yours who contributed this. I mean, another way to think about this is that everyone doing all these 23andMe tests and providing DNA for, you know, various like genealogy sites is also offering up their DNA. I mean, that's how, you know, sort of amateur genealogists found right. help find the Golden State Killer. Right. And and if you think about it in that context, it all seems great. Like we're just solving crimes. But, you know, we are, you're turning, you're allowing the government to figure out who you are in this way that could have these other much more like scary minority report connotations. Right. Figure out, well, it's also not even just to figure out who you are because you have made that con- consensual granting of your DNA. It's to figure out who... All figure out who other people are through you. That you become yeah, a you become a tool for them to use to find other people. Is there is there any data, Emily, in that article about what percentage of people refuse? Is it do any? Or is it Oh, it sounds like everyone is just saying yes, basically. Like that is yeah. <laughs> Everyone's just happy to be let That's, go. That also sounds like kind of bad uh bad policing or bad bad uh, prosecutorial behavior. It's like these misdemeanors are so unimportant that we're just going to not even bother to to enforce them. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. I mean, that is a general problem with these petty misdemeanor charges is whether they should be in the criminal system at all. It might be a perfectly rational, good use of resources for prosecutors to dismiss all these charges. But if they're going to decline to prosecute because it's not worth it, then why are they, you know, taking their they're a bit of DNA along the way. John, you did catch the whale watching boat. You're on the whale watching boat. I'm tell us, tell us yeah. what I re- declined to say a few minutes ago. What is your chatter? Well, uh, okay, well, I wasn't going to. I'm going to double up on Dale, uh, on chatters this week, and I'm going to return with an update on the whales. But first, just a very quick chatter about Victor and Cynthia Liu who went to China in June of last year, so almost a year ago, to visit an ailing grandfather. 
And they have one, and then they were expecting to come back, one to be a sophomore at Georgetown University, the other to start at McKinsey and Company. And China has not left let them leave the country because their father, with from whom they are estranged, is the central character in a $1.4 billion fraud case. And basically, they are letting these two kids roam the country, but they are on what's called an exit ban, which means they can roam the... It's like the Hotel California. They can check in, but they can't ever leave China. As Cynthia uh, uh, said, uh, we are being held here as a crude form of human collateral to induce someone whom I have no contact to return to China for reasons with which I am entirely unfamiliar. Anyway, so that's uh, that story I found striking. But the story that you really are all lining up to hear is uh, an update on the beluga whale. It turns out that the maligned beluga whale has really been maligned, maligned by you, uh, maligned by you, well, brother. No, 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 no. I was just merely keeping people, uh, alivening people to the potential because the Norwegians, frankly, it's the Norwegians who bear the brunt of all of this, uh, of your opprobrium. The Norwegians were the ones who found the beluga whale, uh, what they thought menacing their fishing boats, and then found the harness on it, and then they went back and looked at this um, weaponizing program where they tried to weaponize whales. But it turns out now there have been two developments this week that have uh, that have changed people's minds. One is that a Norwegian sightseeing boat, somebody dropped their cell phone off the boat, and a beluga whale, and some people believe this self-same beluga whale that we were talking about last week, returned the cell phone to the boat and gave it back to the woman. Cutest video ever it is, of beluga whale exactly. smiling at end of video. Right. And then and they took some Snapchats with it, but um, pleasant ones. Now, the second most important thing, though, is that this leads to a new theory about the beluga whale, that in fact they are not a menace, but that they are actually therapy whales. And that the harness on the whale is was used to hook up uh, these little boat vessels that pulled along little children with children on board. And that's why the beluga whale is so social. And he wasn't menacing the the, um, the fishing boats because he had ill intent, he or she, I don't know the sex of the beluga whale, but because they had been trained to be personable uh, for the purposes of um, of soothing uh, children. So, But John, it's not couldn't the... this be like the secret sure. spying operation? Well, the beluga whale goes on a supposed <laughs> charm offensive. Yeah, no, it's the, the Manchurian. <laughs> the beluga it's... whale goes on a charm offensive. Yeah, no, it's true. It's the Manchurian beluga whale. Um, exactly. And I think I think we, as we learned... As a sophisticated political <sighs> commentator, how can you fall for this ploy? <laughs> well, I'm not saying that I'm falling for it. I'm just giving you an alternate history of the beluga whale. And now it's up for people to keep themselves alive to both the beluga whale menace and the soothing possibilities of the beluga whale. So, like many things in life, there is a yin and a yang. <laughs> Are you going to chatter about this forever? Yes. What's going to happen to I'm hoping, all of I'm, American history? It's going to be subsumed by beluga whale obsession. Well, it's uh, one thing I have noticed is that American history is bereft of beluga whale content. And so I'm, uh, I'm rethinking the entire foundation of my... Um, career i mean it could be a great first piece to pitch to 60 minutes <laughs> yes i think the more i talk about beluga whales the less the less encouraged they are about their recent <laughs> inclusion really good about you when you come in with your like beluga whale <laughs> so, investigative uh, series so guys it's about whales beluga whales <laughs> all right oh, yeah. so i uh, in the spirit of in the spirit of this, 
I just thought, so I had a regular chatter, and then I was like, you know what? People just want to hear about whales. So I gathered some other whale facts for my chatter. Is that okay? In the last 30 seconds? No, no. I just like I did that yesterday. I was like, what's my chatter going to be? And I had one. Oh, and then okay. I was like, you know what? People are cool. interested in whales. So, um, so uh, you know what the closest living relatives of whales are on, on land? No, we're not taking your bait. Hippos. Just tell us. Hippos. <laughs> Don't quiz. Hippos. What? Hippos. Whales. Um, well, that makes sense. Whales uh, were uh, land creatures. They were ungulates and who lived on land. And then they sort of started wallowing. And then they eventually moved back into the sea. And um, so they were land creatures who have become sea creatures. Congratulations. I thought it was donkeys that wallowed. Everyone oh, that wallows, was just John. We all wallow. Here's another interesting whale fact. So blue whales, the song of the blue whale, has gotten deeper over the last 40 or 50 years. A lot deeper. Their calls have gotten up to 30% deeper. It's really weird. The, th- the theory is that now that they're not being hunted as much, that males in particular have an opportunity to grow, live longer and grow larger. And as they live longer and grow larger, their calls get deeper. Also that there may be, there's so much ocean noise that in order to be heard, they have to create louder noises. And so that's another that's another theory about it. That's another interesting whale fact. Those are two interesting whale facts. Why don't I leave it there with those two interesting whale facts? Because you guys don't seem that interested in my whale facts. <laughs> so I'm just going to stop there. You're just jealous because your whale chatter didn't go over the way John did. But you set a high bar for yourself. I was just trying to, like, yourself. To, to bring some texture. So we didn't, it wasn't just, it wasn't just sort of sexy beluga spy whale, but that we thought about whales and their in their magnificence and grandeur and in their variety. And and I was just trying to bring some context. But I guess that's is, not welcome here uh-huh. on this show. I, I understand. I think this is, this is the point where everybody goes and decides to refresh their drink. Yeah. All right. That's fine. That's fine. I, it's okay. I won't tell you the story about the when a young blue whale beached itself in Sweden in 1865. The fisherman found it. It was alive and decided to slaughter it first, poked its eyes out so it couldn't see what was going to happen to it, and then spent the next two days methodically spearing it and axing it and shooting it until what? finally this it died. So gross. In the sea of its no, own I don't like this image at all. This is like we've turned into Game of Thrones. Stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> that's gross. That's, that seems like a Nobody weird. Nobody wants to think about that. Then that, seems was like turned, into then into that blue whale was turned into a museum piece. It's a, it's a blue, it's a oh, blue wheel, which you can now <laughs> visit and actually crawl inside. There's a lounge. They've opened it up so you can walk into the mouth into a lounge, like one of those old 70s airplane lounges. But You mean anyway. like Geppetto? You can walk inside the whale? Yeah. you can walk. It's in, it's in Gothenburg, Sweden. I'm going to chatter next week about the whale earwax. Do you know about that? Or did, were you the one who told me about that? What about whale earwax? Um, I'm saving that for next week. <laughs> next week preview, <laughs> whale earwax. I love earwax and I love whales. I promise. So let's do it. All right. We have listener chatter too. <laughs> <laughs> there was no listener chatter about whales. Nobody is still listening. No, nobody. No, we've we've, we've succeeded listening. in actually driving everyone from the podcast. No, nobody is listening and anymore. Listening. Would you wrap this up, please? We have a listener chatter from uh, Cyrus, or I think Saruz Faravar, who's a, uh, at C. Faravar, regular listener, uh, a journalist. He has tweeted us at, at Slate Gabfest and he, about um, the team of pothole vigilantes in Oakland. It's so great that Oakland streets are terrible and there's this team of people that go out in the middle of the night and patch potholes to be good citizens and you know cities being what they are the city is of course really 
peeved about this and doesn't want them fixing the potholes. And it's like, this is not helpful. We'll get to it. We will fix it. Um, but congratulations to these pothole vig- vigilantes who actually accept donations via Venmo. So good for them. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Thank you to Danielle Hewitt here in D.C. and Alan Pang in New York. You can follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter at us there. And you should come to our live show in New York on June the 8th at the SVA Theater in Chelsea. You can get tickets for that at Slate.com slash live. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? If you are John Dickerson, you, I don't know if you're good or bad, John, but you have a new job. Tell us what's going on. We've, we are excited to hear about it. I'm so good and happy. We announced this Monday that I'll be uh, leaving CBS this morning um, next Friday, which I think is the 17th of um, May. And then uh, I will be starting my new job as um, a correspondent for 60 Minutes, which I still find it hard to say out loud because it's... Um, because I'm so excited about it. That's so awesome. Yeah, what it's a great really, way to feel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I, it's, I basically grew up from the minute I was born uh, watching 60 Minutes. So it has a, um, you know, it has a very long track record in my, in my brain and family. Um, are you going to be the Mike Wallace, Morley Safer, Harry Reasoner? or Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.